right, welcome to the ball. It's Jed Banger's ball. Once again, I'm your host, Jed Mayhew, as always. It's good to be back on the air again. We just had our first one back from the European tour, and, uh, well, last night I was in uh, Bakersfield, California, playing a show with Zigzags at, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, DIY warehouse space. There was a lot of studs and patches in the audience. At one point, uh, the kids weren't moshing in, so I said, uh, said, oh, everybody's too worn out from adorning their jackets with studs and patches to, to dance. And everybody went and got back against the wall like something big was going to happen, like there was going to be a crazy mosh pit. <laughs> but there wasn't. But we were up there supporting our friends Tom and Keenan uh, from the Humans comic who uh, were guests on the show. I think they were on episode... Five or six? I don't know. It's on the it's on the page. You'll find it if you go on the Bandcamp page. It's right there. But today we have Jimmy Hay from Beachwood Sparks, from Ariel Pink, drummer, about town, The Rapture, Glass Candy. Yeah, so many bands. Uh, you know, he's a drummer. Strictly Ballroom. Uh, that's what happens when you're a drummer. You get asked to play in a lot of bands. It's hard to find a good drummer. And Jimmy's one of, the, one, of the, one of the best drummers I've ever seen. And, and I know him from way back when, but, but, but we'll get into that. I don't need to tell you about that right now. I just need you to listen because we're going to explain all of that in a second here. So without further ado, Jimmy Hay. I don't know about you, but like I, uh, I've never been like, like I think weed's fine, but I've never been like, some people are really cool with like waiting around for it to show up and it will like inhibit whatever the rest of the plans were for mm -hmm. that day. Mm -hmm. Like if you have a show to go to, like, and you're like loading up your gear or you're like getting ready to go. And then like the bass player is like, Hey, this guy's going to come by with like some weed or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you got to wait an extra 20 minutes or something like that shit drives me crazy. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I, I mean, it's understandable. I don't. I don't know. I haven't been around that kind of behavior in a while. Really? But when you were, like, were you cool with that, or was it just? I don't really have any memories of anybody like holding up an operation for weed uh, procurement. What about like that? I'm sure that had to. Have, well, also, but like that. No, no, no. Okay, I take it back. I was going to say, like, I was thinking of, like, d dispensary delivery style, but that, that's, we, we that's had people, new. We had people showing up back in the day before that was a thing. What about waiting for someone's pants to get dry? <laughs> Probably. I mean, I'm, I know I've been on a lot of tours and laundry would get done. I don't know. I feel like that I was probably the guy, you know, holding everybody up, I would think. Well, because... Uh, the first time I met you was in, we were in Detroit and Beachwood Sparks. Was, really? Yeah. That was the first time? I think so. Hmm. I think that you guys had come to Seattle, but I don't know if I had actually, I'm not sure I'd met you though. I, I think the first time I met you was when you guys were playing with the shins in Detroit and I went out there to drive the van back. Uh, for the shins? Drive your van back. Really? Yeah, because you guys were going to... Oh, right. We were going to the UK <laughs> and Europe. 
Yeah, you were going to Europe. I remember you were going to Spain. I know that's what I remember out of it. Yeah, um, we did do that. But we also did, yeah. But anyway, no. But I rem- well, you went to the UK obviously too. But mm-hmm. I mean, I think you were, you were just going to Europe in general for a tour or something like that. A bunch of stuff. There was like a mini tour in Spain and then UK and uh, you know other France, Germany, things like that. But what I rem- so I go to the show and. I th- it was the first time I'd seen you guys, and uh, I think the Fruit Bats opened, or Triangle, maybe? The band called Triangle. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, that, it was them. Yeah. Whoa. Do you have a good memory? Well, because I wasn't waiting around for weed all the time. You were. I wasn't. You were. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I see what you did there. Yeah. So I remember I was standing with Jonathan Poneman from Sub Pop, and we were watching you guys play. And we'll get back to this later, but I, I just wanted to point this out. He said to me, he was like, he's like, oh, oh shit, we just lost, we just lost the microphone. Okay, there, we're back. He said to me, he's like, uh, I wonder if we can just sign Jimmy Hay as a, as an artist or as a drummer by himself. Uh, Jonathan said that? Yeah, he was like, I wonder if we can just sign, you know, we were, he was kind of joking or whatever, uh-huh. you know, but like, I wonder if we can just sign this guy as the label's drummer. That's cool. Because he thought you were so good. Whoa, nice. I never knew that. <clears throat> yeah, so so we were, you know. Maybe we had, he was joking, maybe he wasn't. No, 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 he don't, was, I think take, he was. Don't take that away from me. I think he was, I, I think he was serious about it, like, saying you were a great drummer, he's paying you a compliment. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that that's actually, like, a thing that <laughs> you happens. You don't think, <laughs> they don't sign <laughs> drummers to labels. <laughs> well, it, it's not the worst idea in the world, because it, it could be, like, for you, I think that they sh- should do that. They should do that. That's like Motown, <clears throat> right? People used to do that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You'd sign the musician to the label or whatever, and then you were guaranteed that you were going to have good drums on it's this probably, record. It's probably good that they don't do that. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> that aside, I was there because I was supposed to drive your van back to Seattle, and you guys were flying out of Detroit to Europe, and so the next day I went. Um, to pick you guys up. I was picking you and Farmer Dave up at the hotel to drop you off at the airport. The rest of the guys had already left. Mm, a little a little bit of foreshadowing there, I feel like. <laughs> That's funny that me and Dave were the, the, the late... Or no, maybe not. Anyway. No, you guys were still at the hotel. And the... Was that because we were like wanted to sleep longer or just because, no, because our Farmer... tickets were together? No, because Farmer Dave's pants were still getting dried whoa that sounds so much like dave <laughs> see i need other people to like remind me of my life like i don't remember stuff like that so you and i are sitting in the hotel room and uh i think farmer dave also had a, a big batch of like weed cookies with him sounds about right that he was planning on taking on the plane like an international flight a giant tupperware thing full of weed cookies are you sure about that i don't know because i remember now you're triggering a memory is it okay you to, tell me. Is it okay to ch- ch- cut in here? Please, yeah. That's oh, well, what, I remember. back and forth conversation. Oh, okay. No, no, no. Well, I just, on a Beachwood Sparks tour that I was on, but I just now realized it wasn't that tour. It was an earlier tour where I wasn't even in the band. I was just, like, tagging along. They had a big Tupperware thing full of weed cookies that was made out of the special THC butter that they got from, like, Malibu or some shit, and they were all excited about it. And I remember, like we all ate some and I was kind of in the back of the van, like high out of my mind. 
And I remember I got so hungry that I just started eating the cookies like for food, you know? <laughs> and then they like discovered the thing like pretty much like almost empty and be like, what the fuck happened to the cookies? And I was just like, oh shit, sorry guys. Like, um, yeah. that might be the story that I'm remembering too. <laughs> so I'm... that's, that's how, that's how I would operate. <laughs> and I don't want to, I don't want to speak for Dave. Maybe when I have Dave on the show, I can ask him specifically if he remembers did he smuggle the cookies into the UK and Europe? You know, that's how I remember it, but that that also could not be true. I did that a lot. You took weed cookies with Dude, you? Dude, I was the worst. <clears throat> I would bring mushrooms, acid, hash, like, to Europe and back, to Canada, like, always. It was, like, a thing. And in retrospect, it's like, that's so not uh, considerate of my bandmates, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's the whole thing because, yeah, I was just in Europe and, like, the whole thing is, like, I don't care if you have anything, you know, and, like, the tour manager guy's like, you know, do whatever you want, but, like, when we cross the border, just, like, let's get rid of it so that you don't fuck everybody over in the whole operation, you know? Yeah, that's normally, like, the the order of the day, but not for this guy. <laughs> but, I, but I, like, the thing is, is I feel like I had a pretty good system dialed in. I just believed it. It, I was like, there was. I didn't believe I was doing anything wrong. I believed I had a right to do it. I would go through all these like things in my mind, like I'm like I'm not doing this, but if I am, I'm doing. You know, like I'm not going to get caught. Like I have a right. You know, just do these like psychological games, and they always seem to work. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just sort of that. Well, it's idea of like, why shouldn't I be able to do this? And I was. I'm good a citizen of the world. Yeah. And I you know? believe these things should be legal anyways, or I should have a right to ingest and do whatever I want to do with my... I'm not hurting anybody by bringing this on the plane. I'm not flying the plane. Stuff like that, you know? <laughs> Those and are I, the things that went on in your mind. Yeah, I'll, yeah, a lot. And then um, I think I just felt like laws were make-believe, you know? They only exist if you, like, choose to believe that they exist or something. So you know? did you ever get any... Did you ever run into any problems at all with that? There are some hairy border stops where I was like kind of sweating bullets like oh fuck this might be the time but it never happened in Texas Beachwood Sparks got pulled over and like they were being pretty like heavy duty with us like I thought we were gonna get taken in but and also the dog smelled something and like but somehow that didn't end up happening either I was pretty good I mean I would I think I learned something from uh Mr. Show, like a sketch on Mr. Show about hiding it in shampoo bottles. Right. Which is, that works great, you know? Yeah. So, uh, that's, uh, that's what I would do. So the thing, so I don't know if Dave was trying to bring, but I mean, probably, I mean, or somebody was, I don't know, but, but he was basically really freaked out because his pants weren't dry <laughs> and, and you were freaked out because you were going to miss the plane. I was really. Yeah, you were freaking out on the bed. That sounds so unlike me. And I was, and I was kind of freaked out just because I had to drive you guys there, and I was also just like, "What the fuck is wrong with these guys? <laughs> <laughs> these two knob jobs?" <laughs> I was like, "This is totally ridiculous." Like, that's funny. <laughs> and so I kept saying, "Dave, like, we gotta go, man. Like, the plane's gonna leave." And he's just like, and "He had to dry his pants." He's like, "I don't want to be on the plane with wet pants <laughs> for ten hours." That's that sounds like classic Dave. So then, while that was going on, I remember I, I tried to I tried to strike up a conversation about uh, about records with you. And How'd I do? 
you were kind of mean to me. Really? Yeah, you were like, because I said, uh, I said, oh, I got that. Uh, I was like, oh man, I scored uh, that clear light record over at Amoeba the other day. And you were like, how much did you pay for it? I was like, oh, it was like 12 bucks or something. And you were like, you can get that for a dollar. Really? Oh, man. <laughs> it's true, though. <laughs> no, 12 is a good price. I was probably just, you know, t- testing you. Uh-huh. Well, I thought, well, I mean, I also felt like the fucking, like, you, you can know. You get s- that for a dollar. What an <laughs> asshole. I just felt like the square kid there that was just like, come on, guys, we've got to get to the airport so you can... You know, get on. But then, of course, after I dropped you guys at the airport, I, on the way home from, uh, uh, as I was driving your van back to Seattle, I called Sub Pop and lied and said that I was in jail and that I'd gotten pulled over and that they'd found a bunch of drugs in your van and, then, and then just hung up the phone, like <laughs> left a message. Because you were a prankster? Because I was pranking them. Oh, that's funny. And then I turned off my phone for like two days. Whoa, that's your funny. <laughs> yeah. That's great. It wasn't funny because I Did guess Tony Keywell, who was like your A&R guy, he called your tour manager in Europe and was like freaking out and bitching him out. No like way. Saying, I don't remember like, that at all. Saying that you guys were dicks because you had left a bunch of drugs in the van and that <laughs> I was in jail in Wisconsin. And and then I got back to the the office and told everyone that I made it up. They were super pissed. <laughs> Damn. Really? Those guys should get into it. I would think they put out like comedy albums and stuff, you know. It's different when you're the on the receiving end. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's not as fun to be the anus of the joke. You no. Know? Did you grow up in LA then? Yeah. Born and raised. Born and raised. And 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 started when did you start playing music? Oh Where did you grow up at? Kinda all over. Um my earliest memories are in Southgate and Bell. Do you know where that is? Uh, kind of. Uh, is it near like San Pedro or no? Maybe. I feel like, like you gotta go I think by it's there. really, it's very south of here. I know that much. I think it might even be like not too far from like uh, Watts and Compton and maybe like places like Downey. Yeah. Like my sense of geography, I should know better, but I know it's like around there. Downey rings a bell. Well, I know that it, they had that like big scandal with the uh, government officials were, uh, what do you call it? Um, embezzling? Embezzling something? money from the city funds or whatever. Bell had a big. Here, our producer Jess is uh, bringing in a cup of tea here. Yeah. For Thank Jimmy you. Now. What, is, what kind of tea are you drinking? Green. Green tea. I'm a bit of a tea connoisseur. Oh, okay. Yeah. We'll get into that. Um, so Bell. But, well, Southgate for sure. Like I have, I have like one or two memories of when my mom and dad were still together in Southgate, and then they separated. So I'd go back and forth between, you know, dad and mom's place. And at first, that was like Bell and Southgate, and then my dad moved to Studio City. Do you know where that is? Oh, yeah. San Fernando Valley? Yeah. And uh, so then it was like back and forth between... By the baked potato. Yeah, exactly. Michelli's and all <laughs> yeah. that stuff. In and out there. Um, real great in and out there. And uh, they moved a lot. My mom was like in this thing called the Revolutionary Communist Party and always lived in communal households with other um, people in the party. Right. So... Um, there was a lot of moving around and living, you know, in crazy households and stuff. And uh, yeah, because I did some of that too. Because my parents were like Scientology, 
originally. Oh, wow. And then it went from, like, that to, like, Baha'i and to a bunch of other, like, oh, wow. a, a new thing, you know? So there was a lot of different... So they were seekers. Yeah. Is yeah. That, is that fair? Yeah. Because I wonder, because... So what did your dad do? Like, what... Uh, well, he was in the party at one time, I think before I was born too, but he kind of got disillusioned and thought they were all assholes. And I think he believed in what they were trying to do, which is overthrow the government and like have people be liberated, you know, but inevitably with a lot of organizations, it's, it's, I don't know, how do you say it? It just felt... In retrospect, it seems like it just wasn't fully realized or something. I, I do have memories of a lot of those people not being that pleasant to be around. And it's and my dad makes this joke like, like I don't have to spend eternity with those fucking pricks, you know? Like, right. Um, who wants to, you know, create a new world with people who just don't know how to be, like, nice to each other? Well, it seems like a lot of times with, like, cults and things like that, the people that uh, tend to get involved in that can be very self-centered yeah, because they're looking for something about themselves, or they're trying to better themselves. Whereas if maybe they just looked outward and were better, nicer people to others, maybe they would find what they were looking for. I don't know. I mean, no, that's interesting. It's just a, I think there, there's, there's that, and yeah, I don't know. They just, uh, it, it just wasn't. I went through like a phase when I was in sixth and seventh grade where I kind of got super politically involved, like demonstrations. I was in this thing called the LA Student Coalition that would have like meetings and organized demonstrations. And I remember like uh, organizing a walkout. You know what a walkout is? Sure. Like at my junior high school. And, and uh, I don't know if everybody, you know. <laughs> I love when you like, ask me these things. Well, I don't know if. I, Do I know where Studio City is? Well, I don't uh, I never, assume, I don't like to assume that everybody knows because then sometimes people get, feel left out or a lot, you know, like, sure. um, there might be people listening who don't know what Studio City is or, or a walkout. I don't That's know. Do true. walkouts even happen at schools anymore? Like, uh, they just had a, uh, they just had one at, uh, Occidental. Oh, uh, there's a lot going on right now, actually, because there's a lot of, um, they're trying to raise awareness about, uh, racial issues on campus with the whole, uh, Missouri thing. Mm -hmm. And now that like there was one at Occidental, there was one at Yale, they're trying to get more funding for ethnic, like cultural center, minority cultural centers, oh, things good. like that, or, or services. Oh, that's nice to know. So yeah, there's a lot going on like that. So yeah, I remember organizing a walkout in eighth grade at Bancroft junior high in the heart of Hollywood for the protesting the Persian Gulf war. But then I kind of, and there was this youth faction of the Revolutionary Communist Party called the Revolutionary RCYB, Revolutionary Communist Youth Brigade, that I kind of like got a little involved with, but I, I just got disillusioned. I, I started to get a sense at a pretty young age that it was, something was missing, you know? Were you in there with like a bunch of other kids? Like, was it like a, a house with a bunch of kids living there? Oh, uh, the households, it varied. I mean, I remember living in Southgate at my mom's place and there'd be like these young kind of like maybe early 20s, late teens, like punk rockers, um, Latino, older Latino. It felt like a lot of people were, maybe they were yet came of age in the 60s. Sure. And so at this point, I guess that they're like in their 30s and... Um, they were kind of holdouts. Yeah, and I think my mom, she was at Berkeley in the 60s and was, I think, involved with, what are they called, Students for a Democratic Society, and they spawned, like, the Weather Underground and sure. stuff like that. 
so it came out of that whole thing but um so yeah i guess i kind of had like a unusual childhood it seemed normal at the time but were you were like say these older punk rock guys or whatever were they like hipping you to music and stuff like at a young age or did you get music through that commune or or did that come later uh, most of it I, th- I remember just being from my mom and dad um my, and what were they know, listening to i remember being like early memories of hearing the b-52s and loving them i called my mom was like you called them the, you're always like asking to play the twos the twos you know and um uh the police Jimi hendrix the clash huge that was my first concert oh wow and and so i remember hearing sandinista a lot as what a year kid. was it like police on my back was like my favorite song you know uh this was probably i was born in new year's eve of 77 so this would have been like probably like when i was two so oh okay 79 or 80 so you don't remember it really remember what the concert oh i do Really? Oh, oh my god are you kidding it's like at, oh you mean the concert <laughs> i thought you just meant like at home listening to <laughs> no, the no, no 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 the concert i was was um what is it what's the last one cut the crap uh-huh so it's it's not mick jones anymore oh, it's, so paul it's, like Sim- an 80s one. it's paul simonin and joe strummer with a bunch of new guys and it was at the long beach sports arena with malcolm mclaren and los lobos opening so i would have been like four or five right uh, and even though it wasn't like the classic lineup, like I fully remember it and being like, holy shit, you know, like I'd never, cause I was a fan. Well, it would have been weird if you were five and you were just like, ah, oh, Mick Jones is in here. <laughs> yeah. Ah, fuck was, this. I was already a snob. <laughs> that would have been cool. <laughs> get this record for a dollar. I, I, can, this shit. I can get on board with that. That's like that old WFMU bit where the guy's just like the expert music guy that's been like, he's like, oh, I saw the Stones in 65. They were bloated by then. <laughs> And he just goes on and on and on until he talks about how much he loves Limp Biscuit. What is that from? Is that it's like some like WFMU bit with like Worcester and Sharpling, where this mm. guy's just the, he's just like the biggest music asshole expert of all times, where he like discovered Big Star and you know he was sixteen and I could easily play that, that role. <laughs> it's like the comic book store guy in The Simpsons. Sort of. Yeah, exactly. So you were playing, you were listening, but that's crazy though that you were saw the Clash when you were five it's pretty nuts yeah yeah i, it, uh, like I saw Merle haggard when i was one but i don't remember that's amazing yeah but i don't remember it i remember the class i mean i can't say i remember every single thing but i remember like i have visual memories in sure. my head i remember being really loud i remember being like so excited that this thing that was like on a record was like in front of me even though it was really far away as you know impressions but and, strong impressions. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, did that? Did you think, like, I want to play music at that point? Or was it, like, still that, too abstract? Probably too abstract. I mean, I remember loving it and being super excited. But I can't say I have some distinct memory of being like, that's what I'm going to do or something like that. I think I probably was just, like, too innocent for that, you know? Right. Um, yeah. And then I got to see some cool shit, though. I saw Bruce Springsteen on the Born in the USA tour. I saw Prince on the Purple Rain tour. Like, that's all my mom. She took me to all that. Well, that's the cool thing about growing up in L.A. and, like, having cool parents. Yeah. That would take you to that. Because I feel like, in a general <clears throat> way, the people that I know from the, that are from L.A. are, if they're, like, white, they're usually from, like, a pretty, like, upper middle class, like, their parents work in 
like Hollywood. Mm. You know what I mean? If you grew up here and you're a white guy, mm-hmm. you probably went to like Hollywood High or you were from Santa Monica or you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you're not from East L.A. Sure. Unless you're Lou Adler or something. But Is Lou Adler from East L.A.? Yeah, he's from Boyle Heights. Oh, cool. I didn't yeah. know that. I know. That's pretty cool, right? Yeah. You're like this Jewish kid that grew up in Boyle Heights. Well, I guess I sort of relate to that because of the Southgate bell. That's action. what I'm saying. I didn't know that. I mean, I know like that you and like Dave and stuff are from here, you know, originally. And, and Dave's you Long Beach. Yeah. He's like a beach it's dude or LBC. whatever. Yeah. But it's interesting when people are from here that uh, are not like from like the west side of L.A. That's what I feel yeah, like. Yeah. I, I guess I didn't say... I see what you mean. Yeah. Like the suburbs or it's whatever. It's a little, it's more unusual, I think. Yeah. Because I feel like if you grew up in Downey or something, then you like, you want to get out of Southern California maybe, or I don't know. I had some of that. I had a nomad phase where I bounced around different cities, <clears throat> but I ended up back here. I lived in New York. I lived in San Diego, Seattle, Portland, uh, Oakland. I remember you living in Seattle, but when was that though? Was that... After Beachwood Sparks or before? Before Beachwood Sparks. I was playing in the Rapture. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Shit. I forgot about So we're that. talking like late 90s. Yeah. And you played in Glass Candy too, right? Yeah. That was in 2001. But that was in Portland though. Yeah. And I'd, I was living in LA. I just, to, to be in the band and to get into the, into character or whatever, I like moved to Portland and lived with them. Because <laughs> they were, I appreciated that about them. They were like. They're the real deal. They're like live their band you right. know and it for better or for worse like it's great for like fans of that kind of thing to have that authentic like th- they live it but if you're in the middle of it it was i definitely felt like a whatever fifth wheel i was on the outside of it and couldn't really as much as they wanted me to be part of it i just felt like man i don't relate to these people but they're in they're um they have a certain kind of magic that i really appreciate you know yeah, I mean, I was never, like, that into it just music-wise. It wasn't exactly my thing, and mm-hmm. obviously, like, looks-wise, it wasn't, like, my thing. But, like, I could tell that they weren't, like, faking it, mm-hmm. or that it was definitely them trying to create something that was their own. I, I felt, yeah, I had. there's a lot to appreciate about them, but I, I felt at odds with it, too. I I just didn't. They wanted you to put makeup on, or I didn't. I don't mind, especially back then. I didn't. I wouldn't have minded. I was really. That was at a point in my life where I was trying to see how far I could go. Think doing things that I was too afraid to do, like years earlier, kind of thing. I started to feel more confident all of a sudden. So the makeup thing didn't really bother me, but I just have always had a thing. My friend told me once and it kind of like stayed with me that he's like you're you're just an authenticity junkie you know like and if i detect any kind of phony or like disingenuous thing it's hard it's just hard for me mm-hmm. and it's not that they were phony in a lot of ways they were more real deal than so many things but just the way that the heavy emphasis on their image kind of like it's easy to admire that from afar but once i was like in the middle of it it's like this is you guys this i don't know i, I I just wasn't buying what they were selling and it with regards to that aspect of it. And, but I'm really happy that I did it. You know, I got, I got, I don't regret any, anything in that way. You know, I know what you mean. Cause it's kind of a double-edged sword in the sense of like, you know, you're playing dress up or you're doing all these kind of things to that 
to make yourself seem bigger than you are maybe but at the same time you still have to like if you're doing that all day long every day you still have to walk down the street <laughs> and have people fucking look at you and comment it's, it's, or it's a lot of work or yeah or just I, or not like you because of the way you look yeah you're making a statement and you're putting a big barrier between you and the rest of the world kind of yeah i think just in us talking about it right now, it kind of made me realize, I guess, probably like most people's impetus for doing that is probably they don't feel like that at all. And they want to do something external to not feel so powerless, you know? Sure. Um, so putting on some extreme gear and rocking like an intense look can probably help you know make you feel less like a dork or something you know well i think yeah i mean that kind of came about in the 70s or whatever it seems like as far as like the theatrical part or the makeup part and the glam rock scene and i think for a lot of people that they're probably just you know small town weirdos and then this is the way that they can be truly themselves or get the attention that maybe they were seeking that they didn't get before because it was like you're either gonna play football or you're gonna you know be a nerd or whatever but you want to do something else and but no one can pay you that attention unless you go big you know yeah sometimes uh, you know boredom do you, i think a lot, a lot of it is just like combating boredom and trying to not feel like a piece of shit you know i think a lot of artists come from abusive childhoods and or just didn't get the love they needed and you know or they're living in a commune or that um, but yeah, I forget how we got here, but <clears throat> well, what I was wondering is, I mean, obviously it comes back to like, you know, when, when did you start playing music and did you start oh, yeah, playing yeah. drums first or, um, and how no. did that... so I went to this, uh, elementary school it started in first grade. It was called Hillcrest elementary, which is in Baldwin Hills. Do you know where that is? It's, no, that's another kind of South. LA yeah. neighborhood, mostly black, at least at the time when I went there. Right. So I guess this would be early eighties and they had a music program. There was a thing, I think this still exists, the magnet program mm-hmm. where, where they bus in kids from far away from other cities. Sure. Um, so I, that, um, they had a magnet thing going at Hillcrest. So I got to go to school with mostly black and Latino kids where I was like one of very few white people. Me and my sister both went there. And um, I played violin in the orchestra. I think I started in first grade. And so that was my first instrument that I played. But I remember always wanting to play drums. But I think I got bored of violin around like third or fourth grade and was like asked the music teacher at school, like, can I switch to drums? Because I had heard kids like banging on drum kits and it sounds so exciting. But then I didn't know that they they don't put you on that right away. They put you on the little practice pads, and that was so fucking boring that I had no patience for it, and I gave up really quick. I remember that didn't quite work, so then I was like, well, maybe I'll try flute. I tried flute. <laughs> got a little, I like going from drums to flute. I just think I had no idea what I was doing, <laughs> so I went from drums, I went violin, drums, flute, I think then clarinet, and that kind of didn't work either, and... I don't know what happened. Maybe I just bowed out. I think I might have just stopped and then switched schools again. And I think I finally went to this school in sixth grade that had a music program and I tried trumpet for a little while. But drums came because uh, I, I switched to Bancroft Junior High in eighth grade and that was in Hollywood. And my sister was already going there. 
And so I had like gone to some school performance that she was involved in. And that school just seemed so fun. It was like punk rockers and goth kids and black hip rap kids. And just like, it was this melting pot and it seemed really exciting. And they were already fucking and doing drugs and doing acid when they were like 12 years old. Right. And I just wanted that because I had a really rough time. And I wanted that grade. too. When oh, I was man. in Eastern Washington and that didn't, it didn't exist. Hollywood had it in spades. And, um, that school's like, flea and slash went there when they were like in you know junior high and it was just really debauched and exciting and you're like super close to the sunset strip and it started going there i think in 90 so all that hair metal stuff was still going on right i remember like 12 year old girls in eighth grade with me would go and like bang the dudes in those bands and then come and like tell us all about (laughs) it and it's just like whoa this is crazy but uh no i know from talking to people that grew up here that i asking him what like what sunset strip was like or whatever even after the heyday of it they were like oh it was fucking awesome like you would just we would just go there every saturday night it was super fun i mean i i hated hair metal sure but i loved going there and just it was so rock and roll at the time and it just was fun even with hating hair metal i could i still could feel like whatever that energy was it was really fun it's so different now what happened uh, though is it because of like the grunge thing and just or just time it just it just played it got played out well I, I have some like pretty like tinfoil hat kind of theories about it Ooh, i'd love I, to hear those well it seems to me that when there's a lot of fun happening that's maybe not in the best interest of the slave masters who control everything in major cities and you know beyond to let that continue because that's kind of like a n- nurturing or uh to the soul right and if if people's souls are being you know nourished and they're getting really inspired and there's places to to play that are fun and bands that you enjoy and it makes people want to actually start up their own thing so that they can be in on that and uh that that's not good for people who are trying to control a, a population of slaves if people are being inspired too much they're going to they might become so awakened and excited that they're like hey you know maybe we can overthrow the government too and like change things and right so if you crack down on you know there being tons of venues that are kind of lawless and exciting and that's going to maybe help like keep things take things back to like the 50s when there's not a lot of options for fun you know well like a simple way of it is like you know it used to be like everyone would just cruise up and down the sunset strip Mm -hmm. all night long and then they were just like all of a sudden they just put up signs that are like or made laws that are like no cruising right so it's like now if they see your car go back three times they can pull you over Mm -hmm. where it used to just be like that's all you did was that was the whole point was to go up and down the street all night long like talking to people i did that going to bars like saying yeah just who's out why can't you cruise you know I don't, it doesn't really make any sense to me it doesn't seem like it should be against the law right not really i mean cruising you're just driving really... around yeah but and the traffic's bad anyway <laughs> i uh so anyway drums so well was your sister older than you was she like yeah she when was she... i was in she's like a couple grades above me i think so was she like feeding you stuff too? she like... was yeah like she got into punk first even while, you know the clash thing that happened early but then i got super like into just black music right exclusively i like once rap music once my mom is the one who turned me on to rap music which strangely enough she gave me a tape 
I remember telling me when I was like four or five, like somewhere around there, like, have you ever heard of rap music? They're like, it's like this new thing. And she had this tape with Grandmaster Flash and Africa Bambata and the Soul Sonic Force, um, the message and Planet sure. Rock and those songs. And I like, and I'd just gotten a boom, but my first boom box as like a Christmas or birthday present. So it was like this perfect storm, you know, and I listened to that tape like over and over and over and loved it. And then so for a long time, it was just like rap, funk, reggae. Um, I was really into all the samples and rap music. So sure. I'd track those down and that turned out, you know, opened me up to like soul and R and B and stuff. And then Julie, my sister went to Bancroft and that kind of triggered the punk thing. She, and, um, she turned me on to a bunch of stuff. I remember like her friends made her these amazing mixtapes that had like joy division and Christian death and the cure and bad brains and Minutemen and everything good basically Bauhaus and so that started it but I was a little resistant to it at first you have to be I think a little bit at the I need yeah I needed it to be like my own choice you know because right. um, I'm just like the contrarian by nature but yeah she definitely fed me a bunch of amazing shit and then when she ended up going to college she did college radio and like turned me on to slint spiderland when it was like brand new and stuff like that so she she was a big influence on me for sure but anyway so going to bancroft was what did it i met this kid nigel lundemo who's still like one of my best friends like i was the best man at his wedding a few years ago and stuff like that and he was already he had drums he had guitars he had amps he had a four track his dad was a session guitar player who played on like jesse's girl and shit, all the wow. springfield stuff and and so he was like my my he did so much for me like we could jam yeah you know we i remember like we recorded like our first song that uh, any of or at least that i had ever been a part of writing and all it was was a ripoff of this black flag song scream mm -hmm. do you know that song Is it later i think that song's on my war maybe. yeah that's a but later the baseline's yeah. like really easy it's sure. just like three notes we would Ooh. cover like machine or whatever like Oh yeah, just yeah, those yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Uh -huh. You know, I'm not a machine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Just because we thought it was funny to say that, but yeah. So our first song ever that we record, and I have a recording of the first time I ever made a song or played like outside of school with anybody, and it was called "These Are Our Demands," and it was the bass line of "Scream" by Black Flag with our friend Gabe. Just like I think I wrote the words, and they were kind of like a inspired by like over the edge like, oh, those, like the movie taking over your high school like yeah. holding everybody hostage all the grown-ups great and movie teachers and and i think i'd gotten the line these are our demands from a fagazi song so it was like this total ripoff like potpourri thing happening but man we were so stoked it was crazy but i played bass on that but because nigel was a drummer and i was already interested in drums eventually i kind of started doing both you know but mm -hmm. bass kind of a little earlier and yeah, I guess that's sort of how it happened. And me and Nigel just made tons of songs on his four track. And still like that time with him was how I learned to like make music and record. And we would, we were into like turning the tape over and doing backwards shit, even in like junior high. And like, we would get pretty in there. I remember we did this whole thing where it was like the bass and drums would be in one pan to one speaker. And then Gabe would play this detuned, almost like butthole surfers ish kind of guitar. And that had nothing to do with what the bass and drums were doing at all. But we were really into that. We're like, it's like two bands at once, you know, like right. stereo. Yeah. We did all this stuff. It was really fun. Well, it's great when you're like you at that point, you have nothing but time to, to mm. do that kind of shit. Yeah. It and was, no like judgment or like, there's no like, Oh, we got to get this done. It was the purest musical or artistic time in my life. I still feel like that, you know? Yeah. 
because nobody was paying attention and we, yeah it was yeah, no deadline to meet or no no computers distracting us like nothing yeah know? it was beautiful no i used to i had this band that we used to practice every day after school and it was like it was like the place to be after school was like because his parents didn't get home until mm. eight and we had everything set up in the basement and it was just like you know we would go straight from school and start practice immediately but like people would just come over from the school and just sit there and watch that's the best watch us band practice yeah yeah <laughs> you know, i know, I know like, that scenario all these just kids so well. just hanging out on the couch like watching weird like vhs tapes while we're practicing yeah <laughs> and then like we would take a break and somebody would have like a little bit of weed or yeah. like we would have like a few beers and then we'd get back to back band practice until like the parents came home and then that sounds know. perfect <clears throat> but it's just fucking around you know like but it was awesome, mm -hmm. and then it was it was just something to do, you know. At the end of the the recording of that first song, these are our demands. We, we, you you hear us like screaming with delight, like we were such dorks. We had no idea about being cool, and we were so thrilled to have contributed like one song into the world of music that you hear it. Like it's weird to have a tape of that moment, you know. And we're just like screaming. We're so happy. I love that time. And uh, I and then, totally had that thing you're describing, like after school garage practices with people hanging out and watching. And totally, because it was like you know before that I played sports and stuff, and it was like that was fun. But there were adults there, and they were telling you what to do, you know, and you had to like maybe hang out with people that you didn't like, but you liked to play baseball, you mm -hmm. know. And then it's like all of a sudden it's like oh I can just do whatever I want. There's no adults here. Mm -hmm. We're just gonna like make make our own thing. You know, we're not we're not part of the school anymore. We're not part of make a porno, <laughs> whatever. You know, yeah. Sky's the limit. Make a thirteen year old porno. <laughs> I'm glad we didn't make a porno. <laughs> so, were you going to shows then too? Like, were they like that started in? Well, I mean, I'd go to concerts, right. but shows that starts around like eighth grade yeah i went to see public enemy in 88 you know like yeah uh, that's a big show though that's that was an concert. amazing show yeah. it was like 88 is their their second album had just come out i mean that was like the time and yeah. epmd and ice t and this group stetsasonic opened and that's all like considered like what they call golden age of hip-hop now right. and I, so i got to see some really good rap stuff but then the shift to Bancroft kind of like uh, ushered in like me sort of getting more into like punk and skateboarding and um, so yeah I remember going to like local shows like right. there used to be this place in Hollywood called the Natural Fudge Company which was like the only place like say if you had a band in eighth grade that you could play there you mm -hmm. know so I remember seeing a lot of like high school bands and some of them were like really exciting I mean I, maybe if I heard them now I'd think they were horseshit but at, at the time it was like holy shit you know like they're doing it yeah and it made you feel like you could do it and so those are kind of like the first yeah, shows I remember well, I was in such a small town in eastern Washington that we didn't have concerts like mm -hmm. the, they were they had concerts at the gorge where in eastern Washington uh, Tri-Cities huh. so like it's like right on the border of Idaho and Oregon and it's like 30,000 people, you know. So you're not near like Tacoma or anything like that? No, no, that's like Seattle, man. That's yeah, like that's that whole other big, side of the that's state. Tacoma's you know? the big city. Yeah, yeah, well that I mean, so for us it was like 
the gorge they would have like you know steve miller band or rod stewart or something would play there is that is that a stadium it's uh where they had like Lollapalooza, and now they Mm -hmm. you know they it's a big uh amphitheater that overlooks like a gorge like kind of like a grand canyon dude yes it's amazing place to see a show i've seen the moody blues there i've seen it jeff beck i saw a lot of cool shit when Mm -hmm. i was a kid but that was the only place and that was like four three hours away so there weren't any concerts coming to where i was at but the bands that did come that played in my town were like Black Flag played there. What year? Way before I was uh, conscious, you know, yeah. like at 85 or something. Would you, know? you still like hear stories? I heard stories it? about it, really? though. And, and like Nation of Ulysses played. Oh, nice. And I saw Fugazi there like when I was like 13 or something Ooh, like that. What album or like what year? <laughs> it was like 92 or something like that. I don't it's even a good re- time. I don't like, even remember. I was just like. Probably in for the Kill Taker maybe or one of those. You know, I don't even know. I was mm-hmm. just like, they were just kids that were like, we're going to the hoedown, which was like, you know, it was at a where they had like rodeos or whatever you know oh right and they had like a, a like almost like an airplane hangar that they do concerts at and there was a local band but a lot of people out of that area went on and moved to seattle and became and were like the bass player uh from foo fighters and saint day real estate he went to the same high school as me oh right, right, right. but it was weird because we didn't have that we didn't have that like big concert stuff so all we knew were like DIY shows. Sounds great. It was cool, but it was just like you had to put on your own shit all the time. Fucking perfect. But I think that's why everybody from that town is like in a band. Yeah. Because we saw that same thing you saw like Natural Fudge Company. Mm -hmm. And it was just always like there was never the idea that you couldn't be in a band because every that's all you had to make a band because there were no bands. Mm -hmm. Your little snot-nosed friends were up there (laughs) rocking. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So then you're going to those shows, and then then when did you start thinking, like, I want to be in a real band? I wanted that. Pr- I think I, okay, before I went to Bancroft, my friend Ben, who had gone to the school that I was going to prior, which was called 32nd Street, that's like, it's this weird school that's on the campus of USC, but it's grades kindergarten through ninth, and it has performing arts oh, program sure. and all that. And uh, Ben and me were really close, and then he switched schools, went to Bancroft for seventh grade and he was telling me how great it was and i remember him playing me this tape of uh, nigel before i'd ever met him my my best friend that i was telling you about and he had just done like some four track thing where he wrote the song and he's playing guitar and playing drums and it was kind of punk sounding and i just like that hearing that like that was probably the thing that made me want to do it even more in some ways than you know the albums i was obsessed with or the you know the bands or whatever it was like hearing this kid who's who i was kind of vaguely aware of and being like whoa look what he's doing and he's like 12 you know right that lit a fire under me and it made me like really want to go to that school which i ended up doing and i totally like befriended the shit out of him like day one and it it wasn't like super calculating it sounds like kind of like twisted in a way like i said i will you know get in there it always kind of is though it is like you go and like grab that guy i guess like we're gonna be in a band together yeah that's kind of what happened to me with my friends you know they were just like you're like surveying the landscape and are just like well that guy's a little bit off like he'll he'll do it like i'm gonna just we're we're making a band now kind of i mean i i went i knew of him i went to the school met him day one and we were like fast friends and i think in some ways like i don't think i knew it at the time but looking back on it i think hearing that thing he did on four track i was just like this is my ticket to not feeling like a piece of shit anymore you know and uh 
So maybe that, hearing that, you know, kind of made me feel like if he can do it, I can do it, and I want to do it. You know? and you, but you put out stuff with, like, you you were in a band that put out stuff on, like, Sympathy for the Record Industry, right? Not that I remember. No? What were the earliest bands that put out, you put out, like, singles with? Oh, well, I was in a band in high school that had two seven inches, but nothing that you would have known about. I oh. mean, it was, uh, we were called Moog. Oh. And we knew that it was pronounced Moog, but we called it Moog. And we <laughs> didn't have any synthesizers. It was just like, we like those. Let's call our band that, you know? And right. uh, this A&R guy from Capitol Records liked us, and he had a little label he'd started. And so he put out singles of ours. And then Capitol actually wanted to sign us. But we were for some reason, we were like, we said no. But they, like, paid for our recordings. We We got to record, like, two singles and maybe like a total of like 12 songs. And I remember there being like a, a little thing with the Capitol logo on it. That was a CD with all our songs that, you know, made the rounds. Got passed around. Yeah. But for, we, we said, no, we didn't think we were ready. We're like, we just started like six months ago. Like this seems like we're, you know, I don't know. We were weirdos. I thought you guys were like, at least maybe you or Dave or some of the Beachwood guys were like, did you guys ever have like, like deals with like labels just as far as like session guys or back then i don't know ever i mean uh possibly like i feel like brent probably at you know he's been in the biz for like he's a been while around. yeah brent rademacher and he was in a group in the 80s called shadowland that I, were signed to a major i think well i think they opened for like duran duran or something like no that. you're thinking of his even earlier band when he was like a kid <laughs> called a new personality okay. that band's good yeah, like, no, I, have a, great, yeah. I have a single of theirs like calvin johnson has a song of theirs on one of his like american indie mixtapes yeah i know? looked at i looked for it once and it was, i remember being pretty impressed by it yeah um so yeah he him and his brother darren have been doing it for a long time but i, I remember brent telling me like i remember asking him once like what's the most money you've ever had and he was like a hundred grand or a couple hundred grand. I was like, what the fuck? Like, I guess he, you know, back, back then there was like all kinds of weird little deals, publishing deals or develop, right. development deals where you could kind of just like sit around and yeah. Cause that's how I remember. Like someone said to me, like in Seattle, like, you know, I was working at sub pop, but I was so naive even then, like, you know, and like, and I, by working there, I mean like in the mail room, you mm -hmm. know, but like so naive about like LA and having, never even been to LA and, and someone being like, Oh yeah, those guys are like signed to some label in like developmental deals or publishing or they, something. And so they, they got money and like, you're right. But they, they have their own band too. And I was just like, I just, that was such a foreign like even, concept to me. I was even tripped out by that. I knew them and I was just like, God, they're so like, together and with it, it, I just was not that way and also I was younger than them so I was kind of like the baby of that group of people so how did you meet those guys then through Jabberjaw as um do you know about Jabberjaw it was a club a coffee house that was here from like 89 till I think it stopped closed down in like 97 or 98 I feel like Tony Keywell told me about it or something that was like the my the closest thing that I had to like a the mask or max's kansas city or like it was like a magical place all the great bands of the day played there i knew all the stat like part of the cool thing about that place and i think this is a lost uh, art in a way of of uh 
the way venues are, are run and, and clubs and things is the staff were, there was no separation between the acts that would play the people that would come to see the shows and the staff. They were all of a very similar sure. sort of like-minded aesthetic compatibility. And I they think were, it still exists, but to a much lesser extent. Yeah. Like, and it does in some small towns I, and I, stuff. I hardly run into it. I, th- I think it's out there, but not, as far as I know, I can't find that in Los Angeles it, anyway. It, yeah, it's hard to sustain. Yeah. So that was one of the, the great things is, like, the staff were as much rock stars as the, and the, as the people going to the shows and the bands. And there was no, like, backstage dressing room, so the, you were hanging out with the bands and... There was just this kind of uni- unified thing that was really cool. And I remember, like, bands would come to town, play there, and then, like, book another show or two at a different venues. And they were always way more exciting at the Jabberjaw. You know? Right. There's just something about the the different ingredients. We had the know? Velvet Elvis in Seattle. Which I was, played there a bunch. Yeah, which yeah. was like that, too. You know, it was all volunteer. Yeah, the Velvet right. Elvis was great. I even recorded. The Rapture recorded unreleased stuff there. On the, oh, cool. Um, yeah. So the Jabberjaw was like a real like uh, important place, and I saw further like Darren and Brent's uh, old band there. That was how I first kind of became aware of them. And then through playing, I joined the band Strictly Ballroom, mm-hmm. which Chris Gunst from Beachwood Sparks and Jimmy Tamborilla was in. No, uh, in which one? Strictly Ballroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Um, I joined that band, and that was sort of like the, my bridge to meeting Brent and Darren and lots of people actually the first tours I ever went on were with Strictly Ballroom um so kind of yeah through Chris and Jimmy is how I came into that scene and then did, did you play Beachwood Sparks you played in you played drums you were the original drummer or yeah like that it started as just this yeah it was Brent Farmer Dave Chris and they wanted to do like a kind of country rock band because they were getting really excited about like Flying Burrito Brothers and Graham Parsons and the Birds and stuff. And I was doing Strictly Ballroom and then they were like, well, we should, let's ask Jimmy to play drums because they didn't have a drummer. And so I started rehearsing with them and, uh, and yeah, I, I played the first couple shows with them too. I actually named the band. I don't know if anyone remembers that, but they were going to call it Snake River Canyon, and I hated that name. But you guys, your practice space was on the corner of Beachwood and Sparks. Right. That's how we would drive there every day, and we always call it, oh, we're going to go play at Sparks and Beachwood. And then one day they were just, we were like, fuck, Snake River Canyon's so lame, you know? Like, <laughs> it's horrible. And, and then I was like, oh, what about Beachwood Sparks? That sounds sort of countryish, you know? And they were like, that's it, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Way better name. I like it. Yeah, I feel just, like there's a terrible stoner rock band named Snake River Canyon that's playing right now somewhere. Do you know what that is? What? At Snake River Canyon? Well, where I'm from, there's the Snake River is in Washington and goes into Oregon. Oh. I and think we used it's, to go fishing there. I think it's like Evil Knievel did some famous Yeah, that's where he jumped, jump. he jumped the snake. That's by where I grew up. Right. So yeah. that was... In Idaho, actually, is where he did it. Yeah. Th- that name was like a tribute to that, I guess. Yeah. Isn't yeah. that where he like got in the rocket and then it just like crashed? I don't know. I mean, I never followed... He's like before my time, but I, I think he did some legendary thing there. Yeah. He act, I think he got in a rocket and tried to rocket over the Snake River Canyon <laughs> and it like crashed and he like broke his back. Bless his heart, man. No, he's a like, fucking asshole, that yeah. guy. Is he? Yeah, he's a horrible. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. But that sounds I mean, he's cool, but... The rocket thing sounds cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's how I ended up with those guys. But I quit the band 
because we never could find a bass player. And then I remember we did the first show, I played drums. But wasn't Brent playing bass? No, he was a guitar player at first. Oh, okay. Yeah, there were two guitars. It was um, uh, Brent and Chris on, like, Who was guitar. playing guitar with you when I saw you in Detroit then? Who was, I can't remember. Like, oh, the, oh, there was, a, like, an extra guy, right? Yeah. It was Ben Knight. Ben, yeah. That's so Ben Knight played bass at the first show. Okay. Then the second show, we got the other drummer of Strictly Ballroom, Ian McKinnon, to play drums. And I played bass. But I just remember kind of being, like, unsatisfied with the way it, it felt. And I uh, was like, eh, if you guys aren't going to take this seriously and get, like, a great drummer, like, I don't want to do it. Or a great bass player, I don't want to do it. And so uh, that's, uh, then I, I, yeah, I just, I never had the patience to stick around in bands and, like, see it through to, I think that's, like. Is this after the first album, though, you quit? Or before? No, I, I'm not even on the first album. So Spurs played. Spursky, and even before him, there was a guy in between me and him called uh, Tom Sanford, uh-huh. who's on like the first single or two. There's like seven inches on Bomp, I think. Yeah, yeah, Bomp. That was well. That's the yeah. I remember. I remember that. That kind of blew my mind because when that first, well, the first album's on Bomp. It's not on Sub Pop. The first Beachwood Sparks album, right? The vinyl the is vinyl's on Bomp. On Bomp that's and the right. CDs on Sub Pop. Exactly. Because yeah. I remember seeing it, and this is so weird. Yeah, back then it was like. <laughs> This is funny because back then you could get signed to a label and only put out the CD version. Like, like there was money to be made on the CD version that they were willing to, like, sign a band that were they only had the rights to put out the yeah, CD. Yeah, that which seems is so weird now. That doesn't exist CD anymore. CDs don't like, even no seem one real. Would, you know? No one would do that now. Yeah, that's funny. We're going to sign you just for the digital the version. CD. <laughs> and then someone's going to upload it to YouTube. That's hilarious. And we're going to lose all of our money. But, uh, yeah, so I remember seeing that Beachwood Sparks record and seeing that it was on Bomp, and that, like, really tripped me out because I just thought of, like, Stooges and, like, Metallic KO and, like, mm. Bomp being, like, a real, like, hard, like, punk label and mm. also, like, a power pop label. Yeah, they're pretty st- sissified, too. Al- yeah. Along with the... the I didn't know that stuff, though. And then yeah. So then when I put the record on, it was, like, it was very, like, different than what I expected it to be. I mean, I liked it, but it was, like, totally... I was just conf- I was just young and confused. They were. I mean, I would go see them. You know, after I quit during that phase, and they were great. Like they're they were kind of like the the best band in town for like a second there. No one was doing what they were doing, and they had this crazy lineup where like it was like five guys in the front that all looked like brothers. They all dressed the same. They all had the same hair. It was like pretty intense to see at that. You know, when it was new, it was like, whoa, you know? I mean, when, even when I saw it, was like when I first saw you guys, it was like, whoa, those guys are totally dressing in a different way and doing a different thing than what I was used to, you know, at the time. Yeah. You know? It Everybody kind of caught up to it, but when it was brand new, it was pretty striking because nobody was doing it, even though it was like a tribute or sure. homage to this other thing. It seemed like they had just dropped in from outer space, you know, for like a good six months or something. Totally. And and so how did you come back to the band then? I think, uh, so I spent some time in New York and then I remember like moving back and I did tours with them just as like their merch guy, whatever needed to be done kind of thing, you know? And then, this, and then I did a second tour where they were like, well, if you're going to just come and sell shit or do whatever, odds and ends, you may as well play something. So I played Glockenspiel. I just like sat there and played Glockenspiel as my main instrument on, on a tour with uh, Jay Maskus and the Fog. It was really fun doing that actually because I would have the sound guy put like a delete delay and reverb on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It actually like 
cut through and sound pretty trippy. Well, it was cool because Farmer Dave was doing basically pedal steel and stuff, but also through like delays mm-hmm. and reverbs and stuff, which His was shit. totally new mm-hmm. to me. I I hadn't heard someone doing that before. He did it in a really specific way too. I mean, he was he was really fun to listen to like back then. I, I, and I remember kind of feeling like noticing that people ha- would like hone in on different members of the band because they all kind of did certain something, you know. And I remember it seemed like a lot of people would come just to listen to Dave because he was so it was just super atmospheric and really tasteful and sounded really good live. But uh, and then you know I think just they started having problems with Aaron and um, he left or got kicked out or something and then they asked me to do it and I was like super stoked because. I'd been watching them play all that time and thinking it was great, but kind of like inside being like, I, I should be doing, you know, like I'm, right. I, I would, I would do good things for that. Well, know? it's hard to be at the merch table and like wanting, yeah. wanting to play drums. You sure. Know? And yeah. seeing the excitement and uh, that, you know, they were creating and just being like, shit, that would be fun to. So did you, you played on the second album then? Uh-uh. No. That's Aaron too. I'm on the last EP well, it's not the last because they got back together and recorded an album, but I'm on the the EP. It's called "Make the Cowboy Robots Cry." Right, right. Yeah. And but you're on the the newest one too, though, in some capacity. Oh, you're right. I forget about that. <laughs> I, I no, I. It just doesn't seem. I forget that that even happened because it was just like, I don't know, happened in like 20 minutes or something. But that record's great though. But it, I mean, it obviously it wasn't going to be like supported in the way that it right. would have been originally or whatever, but. That was one of the few records I've heard where a band took that much time off and came back, and I, I thought it was great. But um, yeah, I, I haven't heard like I never got a copy actually, <laughs> but I do play drums on one song. I know that much. That's a that's a typical. I mean, it's funny when it's funny when people tell me like things like they didn't get a copy of a record that they had like a big hand in, and I just go like, oh fuck, I I. Just, or something that I worked on or something yeah. and I just go like oh god what an idiot why didn't I give that person you know what I mean you just feel bad yeah like, I mean I didn't have a big hand in it well but, you're a, yeah but, but, but you should still have a but I don't even have like you played glockenspiel on a tour and you right? ate all the pot cookies and, yeah you and should at least get uh, a copy of the new record there's a lot more than that that went on I could get into some serious <laughs> carnage but um <laughs> I played on that new uh, Ariel Pink record, and I still don't have a copy of that either. Well, you're not going to get one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I am. He's, Spursky has all the copies of that record. No, he's not involved in that one. No, I know he's not. Well, I'm saying oh, oh, right. I see. You're referring to the that thing, right? Yeah. Well, I'm referring to it in a way with, with not actually referring to it, because I don't really know what it is I'm referring to. He sued them, in case anyone's confused out there. He sued (laughs) Ariel Pink and company, and that's what Jed's referring to. Yeah, yeah, that is what I'm referring to. What's your relationship with him? Because you, I mean, obviously, you, it's a weird thing where you were in the same bands. Oh, you mean Aaron? Yeah, because Um, you were... Yeah, I know, that's not a, that's like a funny, like, Really, you guys were both connection. in Richard Sparks and both in right. Ariel Pink. And he's I mean, always, I think that's a drummer. Thing he's always too. like replacing me. Um, kinda. I mean, he actually replaced Tom in Beachwood Sparks because Tom was in there in between. But yeah, that's a weird thing to have happen more than once, you know. And we've played in the Lilies together. 
that's actually the only band we ever played in at the same time fuck but. i totally forgot that you played in that band too and he played in that band. it's not that significant on my end because i only played with them live i'm not like on any recordings or anything but still i'm what well, i meant just mean like as far as like intense band situations Mm-hmm. And, and you know, that's c- coming from a total place of ignorance, obviously, but just like uh, from what I, that's fair. what I can grasp, you know, and I don't know what the details of Aaron's lawsuit versus Ariel Pink was, but I can imagine being in the Lilies is also like an intense situation. A lot of colorful characters. <laughs> To yeah. say to say the least. Well, because I had Tom Monahan on on the podcast too. Oh right. And you know he talks about playing in the Lilies as well. Oh man, I want to listen to that. And just how crazy it was, like just the recording of the album that they did together, and the way that he had to record it, and how they were writing the music as they were recording it, mm. and, and how the the recorder was upstairs and he and the band was downstairs and he was running up and down the stairs (laughs) like playing stuff and then going back and pressing play and all this shit you know dang some of the best stuff like gets manifested that way that when all the odds are stacked against it that's what he says you know and and i feel like sometimes i've always like i've always appreciated that kind of crazy people in the band uh (laughs) Not to say that I don't know. No, no, but I'm just saying like you're dead on that. Don't uh, don't backtrack. Well, I just don't want to talk about people I don't know. But like uh, you can say they're crazy. But like (laughs) you know uh, that element of surprise, it it generally adds something to it. It it, maybe it's it's a bummer for everybody involved sometimes. But I think it can go both ways. But it often produces like great results, you know. But I don't think it has to be that way. Like I don't, no. I don't believe in that thing that like it has to be chaotic and fucked up and you have to suffer to create great art. Like I think it can go either way. It just so happens that that way often for whatever reason people's commitment is stronger maybe because it's so challenging that it just ends up giving things like a crackly extra energy to it or so what's like your like relationship having like replaced each other a bunch of times or moved in and out like i mean because if i'm being oh no continue no no no. i i asked you a question so honestly like it's a little crackly sometimes it's it's tense here and there but then i've also had really warm moments with him but he's he can be a tough guy i feel like he would even probably admit that like I remember on one of the Beachwood Sparks tours, like him getting like physical with me, you know, and that's not, that's almost like never happened in my entire like time playing music with people. So, you know, he has that potential. That was a long time ago though. I'm sure he's gone through a lot of changes, but it's a little tense. And I think there's always like a bit of like a, maybe like he looked down at me or on me or whatever, a little bit, a bit of condescending, like whatever kid, you know? Right. Um, but I think that there's, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I've Did had you guys get in a fist fight on tour. It, it like almost that, but it didn't. It didn't blossom, so to speak. But uh, I remember him either shoving me or hitting me, and I, and you know I, I probably wanted to retaliate, but it was clear like, okay, I'm I'm out. You know this sucks. Like, um, so I don't know. I'm not that close with him, you know. But yeah. we, we've been in and out of each other's lives. And honestly, since that whole lawsuit shit went down, like, I haven't seen any trace of him. Like, I don't know if he's laying low or what, but... I heard he plays in, like, a cover band that does a lot of, like, 
like a like a really like good cover band that does like a lot of like good covers and plays a lot of weddings but i that's I don't know. cool someone would, told me that i don't know you know that's probably really fun I, you learn a lot from learning other people's songs you know i, yeah. I would do that if the the right people uh you know made themselves available so that's what i was wondering uh, like what are you, are you doing that kind of stuff like are you doing session stuff now what are you doing like are you do you have any desire to like be in a fucking three nights a week practice band or yeah let me really quick before i answer that i just want to say because i don't want to seem like i'm just like talking shit about aaron you know we've had our differences but he was a, i will say he his drumming in the lilies and beach with sparks was kind of like a pretty important influence on my drumming because i was i felt like i was like the more unwieldy intuitive self-taught kind of drummer and when i would see him play it's like wow this guy's like really controlled and tasteful and kind of plays in like a classic Ringo like 60s slightly jazzy you know kind of way that was really wasn't like my natural forte so I learned a lot from him, especially when I had to play in Beachwood again I was like fuck I, I gotta step up my game and I think my thing was I was maybe a little bit better at more like fucked up angular like weird intense stuff and tasteful and restrained took more effort I could do it but it took a lot more effort so I learned a lot from him and I, I, you know, I got to give him credit. Like, well, I got to say, I felt uncomfortable even asking the question because I've been on situations with bands and people and on tours and stuff where mm -hmm. people have, I've gotten physical with people or people, you know, or gotten close to it and like mm -hmm. fucking screamed some of the like Ugh, worst yeah, fucking shit too, you could man. imagine. Like, and I think, you know, I don't like it, I don't want to be asked about that kind of stuff either because I don't like you're just saying I don't want to like talk shit about this person that's not in the room or feel like I am or they heard this and thought like oh he's talking shit about me but I would think that you know someone like Aaron who's been doing it as long as he has or you have or whatever you, you get to the point where you understand that like there's things that happen that you know they just happen because of the situation, you know, because of yeah. being in the fucking van and being bored and being stressed and being tired and drunk and on drugs. And it just fucking happens. Like touring is like heaven and hell, you know, <clears throat> combined. It's, it's hard, but it's, I, you know, you need it too. Yeah. <laughs> you need it to live, but it's horrible. <laughs> it's a weird thing that way. Yeah. It's um, fucked up. I mean, whatever. He can be a prick, but I can be a prick too. Exactly. So. That's that's the point. Is that you know everybody's everybody's gonna be a fucking asshole at some point on tour. And it's never really about like if someone treats you like shit. It's not your no. fault in a way. I mean, it's usually what the other person is dealing with. And well, if someone treats you like shit, and it's not necessarily your fault, but it's also maybe not that they're a bad person either because they're just stressed out about something else going yeah. on or whatever you know i mean the way we, most of us come into the world is like this the start of all the suffering you know we the doctor slaps us to make us force us to breathe and there's like bright fluorescent lights and the mom's just been shrieking in pain the whole you know it's like it all it's not it's never the drummer's fault or, no. you know. i spend a lot of time telling people you're doing a really good job man you're playing really well like let's just we just gotta we're just gotta get through this and like it's gonna be okay you know like i'm that's sorry nice. about what i said like i didn't i'm not mad at you just 
fucking pissed off because the show sucks and there's nobody here but like you're doing a good job yeah that stuff <laughs> sucks man well that's nice that's that's a lot more than a lot of people give you try yeah. well you know i didn't used to do that hmm. so well so what are you doing now <laughs> oh yeah so back to that uh i was doing i've had two phases in my life where i attempted to do session work there was one around 2007 where somehow by way of magic i got kind of connected to chris robinson yeah singer of the black Crows. I think we all did around 2007 did we yeah okay so i think yeah. we played a sh oh i played a show with him in farmer day but i don't think you were there right mm. i never played live with him i played but... one show with him and he kicked me off stage really yeah interesting why because i didn't know the songs oh okay that's, that's a decent reason i guess <laughs> But uh, he, I met him at Amoeba when I was working there, Amoeba Hollywood, and he was he was he liked the All Night Radio record, and that was how we started talking. And then it somehow it led to him wanting me to play on some demos of his. I think he was in that phase of like, I've got these rough ideas, let's just go in and like record them and see what happens, you know. And he, that went well. And then he hired me to play on a record that he produced for these dudes who were in that band the jayhawks yeah you know them mm -hmm. so the two main singer songwriters of that band i played on that record and that was really fun and then he wanted me to play on another record he was producing and he just dropped out um he just fucking went like i guess i didn't call him back in time i don't know what happened but he just stopped returning my calls and, and never heard from him again and we were like kind of chummy we would jam together and hang out and so that kind of ended phase one of my session career. And then within the last, I don't know when this started, a year and a half, two years, this friend of mine who I knew when I was like just out of high school um, has become a pretty successful, not really successful producer. His name's Ariel Rechtshad. He produced like Vampire Weekend and Sky Ferreira and Usher and all these like huge mainstream like pop things. And... I just kind of became aware that he was doing that. And then like crazy, like a month later he calls me and we're not like, we don't hang out a lot at all. Sure, yeah. And he just like, all of a sudden was like, Hey, are you available? And I was like, yeah, you know, I really wanted to do session work. And so I did a bunch of stuff with him and, um, it doesn't happen often enough for me to feel like I can like call myself a session player, but I did a bunch of things with him. Um, he kind of like brings me into like, figure out like you know like I'll, I'll create a beat and then that ends up dictating the feel of the song and i just get like a session fee and i think he he's working on that band Hyam or haim Hyam. yeah their new album and he asked me to he's like paid me to make mix tapes for him i think just to listen to in his car maybe spark some ideas for production or so I, and then I do like music supervision for this guy who chose all the music for like Entourage, mm -hmm. but I've never met him. He, I just like <laughs> it's he, like such it's a so LA it's it's story. painfully absurdly Los Angeles. Like so, he does a radio show on for Apple now, uh -huh. Apple Radio or whatever, and he just like hits me up to like ghost program his show and will give me a little cash. He'll be like, hey, I need a bunch of songs about astrology or like a bunch of songs that this person would like like tyler the creator is a guest on my show and so i've like done that anyway i don't know if that answers your question no it does it's I, great because we've been you know at some point i mean there's so much we could talk forever and, and and that's a great thing about this because there's no time limit except for just that 
you know people's like, attention span. People's <laughs> attention span. <laughs> like good wrap it up already <laughs> fucking. but in the sense of like you know uh you're you're you dj a lot like you, yeah a and, lot and so i most people probably at this point know me more as a dj than a i think mo- maybe maybe yeah i mean i think i knew i knew, i met you early on in my life is in music or whatever so i know you more as that but um and and these days i don't like to go out anymore so i don't see dj anymore but it but i don't I, blame you no no it's but i had a question because <clears throat> someone told me um you know that you don't ever drink when you're djing oh yeah i don't i mean i used to but i stopped drinking like i don't know when that was 2010 Something you just like stopped that. drinking. Or you stopped drinking while you're DJing. Oh no, I, I don't drink anymore. Oh. oh, they oh they were like he doesn't drink only when he's DJing. Yeah, no, that's just because I stopped drinking. Um, but I I like to. I thought it was an artistic choice. Well, I mean, no, it is in a way because I I think my DJing's gotten way more sensitive and like fully realized since I stopped. But some of that had to do with the fact that I actually started reading about like club history and dj history like there's this amazing book about like the evolution of kind of like just gay culture and new york disco from like 69 to 79 called love saves the day by this writer tim lawrence Mm -hmm. that book like you don't even need to have any interest in djing or gay culture you know or anything that's just such a well-written book it tells such an interesting story but it, it kind of made me aware that there used to be this, I mean, it still exists, but there's this whole style of DJing that was around in the seventies and eighties in New York, where it's hard to kind of sum it up in the, in the time I have, but, but you have a pretty specific, you're, you're thinking vibe when you're going to DJ, you're not just necessarily, or do you ever just grab like the records that are by the door or are you like, I put, I put some work into selecting them, but this is a complicated thing. I, I kind of got, I went on this like kind of spiritual path um, after I got kicked out of Ariel's band and I like had this like kind of crisis in my life where like my relationship broke up. I was with the same girl for like almost eight years. We lived together and it ended really badly. And then it kind of coincided with me being in Ariel's band and I was still never like healed from the relationship thing ending badly. Like I found out she had been like secretly doing heroin for the last year and a half of our relationship and we lived together and I did not know. So that was really like, that blew my mind. Yeah. And I like helped with the help of her parents to get her into a rehab and thought we were going to like, it was all going to, you know, we'd go back to being together and that didn't happen. She ended up like cheating on me with some dudes in the rehab and that was like heartbreaking. So I went through this like crisis thing, you know, a lot of pain and that led me to like go, uh, I went to massage school. Um, well you also performed, uh, Reiki on a duck that I had. Did I? You tried to. The duck <laughs> The duck jumped out. Oh. Yeah, and I think I actually did a bunch, or maybe not a bunch, but a couple of distant, which is like you do it not present with the person, sure. but you can like send it through space kind of thing. It's a real thing. Yeah. Um, My mom does it. On Duke. Was that the dog's name? Babe. Babe. That's yeah. what it was. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that I went into this whole thing. I because I life was just going so poorly that I was like, man, I got to try something different. Because I I'm alienating everyone in my life. I'm the things that I care about are ending, you know. And 
So massage school. And then I went to these meditation retreats where you don't talk for 10 days and you just sit there and meditate for 11 hours a day. Yeah. And you're confronted with the, the horror of your inner reality and all the judgmental thoughts that come through your head. And those totally were so important and like changed my life and purified me energetically and physically in such a way that I was like, dude, I, I want to, I feel so good. I don't want to like do anything to fuck this up. So I like quit smoking, quit drinking. And then that eventually a path led me to uh, learning how to do Reiki, which is just energy channeling. It's like, uh, the force. It's what star Wars was talking about. You sure. Know, like, a, and that's, um, made it's fed into my DJing and even like my song, you know, music, uh, composition and kind of every aspect of life really where it's just, um, so the way that ties into DJing is like, it's through doing Reiki and meditating. It's kind of like made me way more sensitive and in touch with like my intuition, you know, like not my brain, but like the other part of us, that's a different type of consciousness. That's more like feeling based, I guess is how you'd say it. Or it's not so much like rational left brain thought. It's like trusting in the unknown kind of thing. And the way that, uh, ties into the DJing is you can develop your intuition to such a place where like shit just start. You don't even have to think about stuff. Sometimes it just starts kind of happening in this really elegant way that as long as your brain isn't getting in the way, it can start to just amazing shit can happen. I don't know. We we could do a whole other thing. Well, yeah. We could do it in part two. I, yeah. I call it flow or whatever, because for me, it's like uh, more meditation and breathing are sort of the tools that I use to kind of get myself uh, into the flow of like feeling like I'm uh, doing things without thinking about them too right. much or uh, analyzing right, or judging or whatever you want to call it. In my experience, the best things in my life since I started doing this stuff and working with, you know, my intuitive side have come from not thinking and almost like not it just happens, you know, and it's amazing. And you start to get addicted to it. Cause you're just like, wow, like the, when things just click and they're effortless and it just all makes sense, it's, it's mad, you know, it's so exciting. But the, that book left saves the day just kind of hipped me to the idea that there were all these storyteller DJs who it was less about crazy tricks and, and just like putting songs together in such a way that throughout the course of a night, I mean, back then those DJs would DJ from Saturday night into Sunday the next day at like noon. That was just normal for New York, you know? So you, you would take people on a journey and tell stories, you know, group all the, the records that had similar themes and the lyrics or titles together. And, and, you know, people would take acid. That was like way more common back then. So they're, they're listening, you know, when you're tripping, you're like, you're really dialed into some subtle stuff and, and, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, it, I'm getting kind of like losing my. Well, you focus, seem like you're in a good spot now, though. Yeah, I actually, I mean, yes and no. It's it's a bit of both. I think I I have like a may I'll have like a week of just total bliss, and then I'll just hit a wall and be like super fucking depressed. Well, like, everybody does. And I think that's just uh, I don't know what it is. I don't even know if I need to know. I, I at least I'm I I'm able to ride the waves, you know, and get through it. 
Um, it's a weird, it's a weird time in the world that has a yeah, lot to do with it. It's a fucked up time right now. I'm f- feeling the economic crunch like crazy. I mean, I'm basically being supported a lot of the time by my girlfriend or my mom. I, occasionally some money will come in through these various things, you know, the session work or the thing or DJing. And then I'm like good for a little while, but that's stressful, man. Yeah. Being 37 and not being able to consistently support yourself and leaning on your mom or your, I mean, it's fucking. I was d- delivering beer to like celebrities for their like Thanksgiving parties today through some marketing company. You know? Beautiful. Do they need, do you need help? <laughs> do, you need a, do you need a roadie? <laughs> I wish, I wish there was enough work that I did need one. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a weird time. Yeah. And I would love to play in a band back to your question, but it doesn't people, I was playing in this band for a second and I was not a good fit for it. It was not, it just didn't feel right and so i stopped for me it's like i i need there to be that mad like chemistry and it's that just that only comes along you know every so often and and sometimes not at all and i did do a bunch of my own songs um i went to new york last year and mexican summer let me use the studio um for free and uh i ended up a cool spot yeah, I like the sound of that room. Actually, it's it kind of surprised me, and so I I kind of went in with no plan. They, you know, Keith, the main and our guy there, had bought Keith me. Abramson. Yeah, and he bought me a four track for like sixty bucks, and just sort of had taken an interest in me. Oh, I know the way that happened is I, I recorded a single with my friend Eric Copeland, who was in Black Dice. Oh yeah, and that came out on Mexican Summer. So from that, he kind of you know had some little idea of what I could do. And he was an all night radio fan too. And then, um, so he'd been kind of like, you know, loosely shepherding me along in some way by buying me the four track. And then, and then I had all these song, I did that song ideas and he let me come in there and just with like a few days and just like, let's see what you can do. And I went in there with my friend, George Elbrecht, who plays in a uh, Ariel Pink's band. And he used to be in a uh, violins and Lansing Dryden, these other, yeah, bands. Yeah. he produces a bunch of bands and uh, we just banged out a bunch of shit. And, I mean, I think it's like almost 20 songs, but they're like really rough on, you know, half formed right. things. And the sad part about that is like, I thought we would finish them, but it kind of fell apart. Like George became too busy and started needing money to do it. And Keith was kind of not able or willing to give that money. And so I just have these half formed demos lying around that I put on my SoundCloud page and just because I was getting so tired of people not hearing them, you know? and But it's, it's hard. I wanted to finish them there. I'm the kind of person who, like, wants to, kind of like the way Prince does it, like, I want to, like, finish the song. You know, I don't want to stop work on it until it's done. Because I know even a demo, like, will get played to all kinds of people, and not everybody has the ears to hear, like, some fucking, like, half-formed demo right. and hear the potential of what could how it could be, you know? Only, only the person who wrote it knows, like, what what it's going to sound like at the end. But so I had a little brush with doing my own stuff and that was really exciting, but it kind of fell through. And now I'm just kind of, I don't know. I feel like I'm drifting a little bit, but um, <laughs> I think we're all drifting right now. Yeah. I'm just like, I'm in a phase of my life where I'm like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I don't know. You know. Welcome to the club. <laughs> That's good. We it's, meet at the bar. It's good to be, uh, it's good to have company, but, but I'm, happy even though it's like things could be better like i i'm in a relationship i've got like two cats and a dog and a home and 
sick record collection. <laughs> you know, things could be a lot worse. Things could be a lot worse. That's yeah. pretty good. Yeah. Well, thanks, Jimmy. Thanks for having me, man. For this sure, man. Fun. It's good to talk to you. Yeah. All right, that was Jimmy Hay on Jed Banger's Ball. Thanks to all for listening. You can hear Jimmy every second Thursday of the month on his show. It's called Rainbow Jail. It's on dublab.com, who uh, we're also big big fans and friends of. It's Rainbow Jail. It's 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific. The second Thursday of every month on dublab.com. It's Jimmy's show, so check it out there. As always, uh, I want to thank Adam Wade for engineering. And our producer is Jess Hunley. And thanks again to you guys for checking out the show. And we're going to have a big guest here, hopefully. That's the plan, but I don't want to give it away yet. But keep listening. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>